Hello, I'm Mark Trichel, and you are listening to With Flying Colors, the podcast where I interview subject matter experts to provide credit union leaders with tips on how you can achieve success with NCUA and pass your exam with flying colors. Today, I'm joined by Steve Farr to talk about credit union capital. Steve, before we jump in for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and your career experience with NCUA? Thanks, Mark. I look forward to being able to talk about capital with credit unions because it is a subject I spent a great deal of time on. My history with NCUA is I started as an examiner clear back in 1987. Spent most of my career as a problem case officer. And as a problem case officer, I had the opportunity to work in conservatorships, number of workouts, liquidations, assisted mergers. So we got well-rounded and worked throughout the nation on those. Then around the year 2000, I went into the central office where I worked on assisted mergers throughout the regions. I'd help them with the plans that they put together on that. Prepared a number of supervision letters that many of you credit unions have probably read. Was involved in the corporate resolution, as uh, many of us were that were in the office at that time. I always referred to that that aged me very, very much. <laughs> the uh, capital rulemaking, I started on that in like 2014. And that's the rule that just went into effect on January 1st. So that had a long incubation period. I worked on a number of postmortems, which is always kind of interesting looking at the uh, failures at NCUA. Because I worked with all these problem credit unions and postmortems, I was always associated with failures in NCUA, but hopefully in a good way. <laughs> I spent time as the vice president of the CLF. And one of the things that I did as a responsibility as vice president of CLF is we were looking at how much capital should the CLF hold, because we wanted to be able to return as much as we could back to the memberships, but still hold a responsible amount. So that helped me to do a calculation of which... I was asking credit unions to do. So hopefully we'll benefit from that experience as we move into this subject. Great, Steve. I wrote a few things down that made me chuckle and smile, but yeah, the corporate resolution. I remember when you were the guy at NCUA who had to work with the CPAs about how NCUA needed to allow for that on NCUA's books and records. And that's when you taught me about what Monte Carlo simulation was. I think you used some of the backdrop there. Yeah, those were interesting times. And as you mentioned that, you talk about being VP of the CLF. That might be something we could do a podcast on separately because that's not a lot of people who understand the CLF probably. And you've left the agency, Owen Cole, who used to be the, the president, recently retired. And that might be a topic that we could talk about later. But yeah, and Steve, so you and I have known each other for over 30 years. I believe we met in or around San Francisco at one of those NCOA training classes, and we may have gone out and had dinner and maybe a beer or two. And then we worked very closely. You were very modest about being a PCO for a long time. You were, if not the best problem solver at NCOA in those years, you, you were number one or number two. And you taught me a lot about my new job when I came out there to be your supervisor, the director of special actions. So those were good times. It doesn't seem like that was so long ago, but you know we learned a lot back then. Also, you spoke to the fact that you took a heavy interest in this and were involved in it in 2014 on the failures that you were involved with where credit unions cost the insurance fund money. And so having you involved in that with your background, you were really the right-hand guy for the ENI director back in 2014 and all that when these rules were coming out. 
one of the things that I talk about with clients is inside baseball, different things about NCUA. And there's things that you know, I think, about how this came about that probably nobody other than maybe Larry Fazio can remember from back in the day. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about this. So before we start talking about capital, what would you say the purpose of regulatory capital is? What can we glean from the purpose of regulatory capital that will lead this discussion? It always helps to start with why, why regulatory capital. And it's really consistent, same with how any business would want capital, but for banks and credit unions, the same. It's there to absorb those losses. But because we have deposits of which the public puts into the institutions, we need to have public confidence and they look at the capital ratios. It restricts excessive growth because if you're limited to certain capital ratios, you can't grow exponentially very, very quickly, which would be putting risk into your balance sheet. And I was near and dear to how I thought my main responsibility was I protect the insurance fund. Like they talk about people that play with the NFL, their symbol is protect the shield. And mine was always, we need to protect the fund. And capital is a big protector of the insurance funds. But beyond that, we really expect credit unions to go beyond the regulatory capital requirement and hold the appropriate capital based on their unique risk. And they need to have the ability to identify, measure, monitor, and control those risks. So we'll kind of cover that part of the capital a little bit later. But adequate capital for safety and soundness purposes is the key part. For undercapitalized credit unions, they result in failures. And those failures result in losses to the insurance fund. Probably the most recent one that people will be aware of is the losses are incurred from concentrations of credit in credit union medallion loans. If we go back in history, we've had failures a long time ago based on mortgage servicing assets, investments in properties in Florida by credit unions in the upper Midwest. So that's why you know, capital saves the insurance fund and the institution from failing itself. But then there's that risk of overcapitalization. And that's one that can really start to bother me personally. And I know Bob Fenner at NCOA used to really be upset about when the credit union had too much capital and people would look at that and try to say, how can I turn this into a personal gain for myself or for my group? When people would convert the credit union charter to something of which they were in a position to gain on that and take the funds that really were the membership, those were always really disheartening. So as a caution credit unions against, you don't want to be overcapitalized because you want to be returning as much as you can back to the membership. So that's kind of the purpose of both regulatory capital and capital. And by having above average capital, whether that's to associate, to mitigate your risks, and we're going to get into that. The other thing, I mean, when you have the extra capital, it's free money. And while they're not paying high rates on anything right now to attract money, it does help subsidize loan rates as well as things like that. Next, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the net worth ratio when PCA and things like that and when that came into play. But I'm reminded of a story back before we had PCA and you and I were PCOs and we could allow credit unions to go below the certain levels that PCA created. I remember you telling me a story about one of your credit unions that you had that had very low capital and had some challenges tied to that, but they were reborn like the Phoenix because of the great efforts they put forward. And it was one of those situations that I enjoyed the most was when you had a credit union that you were able to work real closely with to deal with the problem. And 
it almost became like a partnership of working to be reborn like the Phoenix. And as if I recall, there was a credit union that liked how much you helped them in that process, that you might be the only NCUA retiree that has a boardroom that is named after you because of all the work you did at that credit union. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, it's kind of funny because we always talked about credit unions who were building a lot of crazy looking buildings back then. And when they finally had gotten situated where they could could build a, the building that they needed. Of course, we built a really square, efficient building. And that's nice because a few of those credit unions I did workouts in when they were actually in negative retained earnings positions, many of them are still around. They, the, a few have been merged into other entities or because they took on other ones, but there's a few of them that they're still around today. And I do take uh, a lot of pride in those. Absolutely. No, that's, I can think of some where I did the same and it's, that's when everything's working perfectly from the regulatory side and the credit union side and really good cooperation. And that's fun to see. And it's fun to participate in. All right. Well, so net worth ratio, why don't you speak to the net worth ratio as it relates to credit union capital? This starts NCUA's history with capital. There really only dates back to the, the year 2000. There was different capital regulations that were in effect before the year 2000. It was like, I thought about looking it up, but it's like, yeah, not going to go there. It was too, too long ago. So it was real novel though, when credit unions started to have to do the net worth ratio, and it was very controversial and everybody, a lot of people were really upset about it, but it was based on and required from the prompt corrective action uh, regulation that went into effect then that we had to put this measure that was consistent with what the banks had. So we ended up with just using a simple leverage ratio and called it the net worth ratio because it has in its numerator, mostly gap pertained to earnings type items and capital, but it has a, the unique item dealing with mergers and that we take pre-acquisition retained earnings and count that part of capital available to absorb losses, which really isn't quite that way. But so it has this kind of unique numerator. And then the denominator is just simply being assets. And when we wrote the regulation, we allowed a lot of definitions of assets so that if you were growing rapidly, you wouldn't have a fall, short-term fall in your net worth ratio because you could use averaging to bring it down. But in the end, I mean, credit unions took to that pretty well. And we had very few that were initially impacted by it. But if we go back and look at this measure, it was 7% or greater to be well capitalized. Now, recall that the bank's similar measure on their tier one ratio is 5%. So going back to what was the reason for the 2% difference, 1% was due to the NCUSIF and that that's still on the books of the credit unions versus for banks, they've expensed all of that money that's in their insurance fund. The other 1% was really there because credit unions rather limited ability to raise capital except through earnings. Well, with now this increased use and availability of secondary capital, that's probably somewhat mitigated. And I haven't heard a lot of discussion on that. But we started with the net worth ratio, and that was the initial measure and been in effect since 2000. And now we're going to move forward to what really were the changes that start January 1st. Got it. And so if I'm interpreting you right, so the 1% buffer for the NCUSIF, I get that. And the other 1% because credit unions couldn't raise capital, as you referred to, limited income credit unions can get secondary capital. And then under risk-based net worth, there's some opportunities for other credit unions. 
it sounds like if you were still at NCUA, you would be open to maybe well capitalized being able to be a little bit less that, or at least reevaluating that 1% buffer potentially for all credit unions or for low income, or am I over-interpreting that? Uh, you might be over-interpreting that, but I will make a comment on that when we talk about the complex credit union leverage ratio. Okay, great. Then let's talk about the new complex credit union leverage ratio. This final rule was approved by the NC board in December, just actually this past December, providing a simplified measure of capital adequacy for complex credit unions went into effect on January 1st. The first measurement of this will take place in March. It's modeled after the community bank leverage ratio, which was implemented by FDIC in November of 2019. So credit unions that satisfy eligibility do not need to calculate the risk-based capital ratio, which we'll talk about in a little bit, by maintaining a higher net worth ratio. About 690 credit unions with assets over 500 million, which makes them into the definition of complex and of able to use the credit union, uh, complex credit union leverage ratio, but they have an average net worth ratio of 10.16%. So on average, everybody has a 1% buffer above the amount needed. And they're really the only thing you get there is they wouldn't have to compute the risk-based capital. The minimum is set at 9%. Same as it is for the banks. So basically, it's the net worth ratio of 9%. Same net worth ratio that the 7% to be well capitalized. So that 2% difference that there used to be between FDIC measures and NCOE measures on the simple leverage ratio is essentially gone. It goes away under the complex credit union leverage. Under the complex credit union one. Okay. You'd be a little bit remiss to say, well, it's exactly comparable because it's really not. Uh, the credit unions did get a benefit. It just really probably wasn't worth the amount of people that had comments about a negative about bringing that up again at this point in time. I think 9% is a pretty fair measure for leverage of just basically pure equity for the most part, amount available to cover losses, so that this measure is good because it's still 4% above the amount needed to be well capitalized. So it, it does create a significant buffer above the net worth ratio. And so, Steve, if someone's at 9.4%, so they're a billion dollars, so they're over the 500 million threshold, they're at 9.5% net worth ratio. The advantage they have with this new regulation is that because they're over the 9.5%, they're well capitalized. And so they don't need to do all those other calculations tied to how much they have in member business loans, how much they have in real estate loans. While they can do the calculation, the one that NCUA now will grade them on is being over the 9%. Am I summarizing that right? That's correct. As long as you are a qualifying institution that you don't have significant off-balance sheet exposures or greater than 2% of assets basically and tied up in goodwill, which generally isn't available to cover losses. So there are just the four qualifying criteria. Okay. You reminded me of someone who's still at NCUA when I would restate something and get it mostly right, but off a touch and they would clarify it. They would start by saying that's roughly correct. And <laughs> that always made me smile. So adding those caveats to what I said, make that accurate. Okay. Got it. Anything else on the complex credit union leverage ratio? That no, you it, it is fairly straightforward. Very good. Very good. 
Let's speak to risk-based capital. This is another one that just comes into effect. First measurement of be on the call report that's been drafted and is out there for credit unions to look at, starting with the measurement in March. I say, don't be afraid of this ratio because even though very few credit unions is, you know, we're talking about the complex credit unions and ones that aren't going to use the leverage ratio to not have to compute risk-based capital. It is a valid measure that takes into account the uniqueness of your assets. So when we put together those risk weights, they're pretty much the same as in the other banking agencies. We did manage to get some things in there dealing with concentrations of assets because those are what have led to credit union failures. So there are additional risk, higher risk weights when you get above higher levels of real estate loans and especially commercial loans. So I I say, even if you're not going to end up having to calculate the risk-based net worth requirement, I would want to be aware of it because it is a nice another measurement tool the credit unions would have available to themselves to see where they stand in capital under a risk-weighted basis. Sure. And so it's a tool that gives them some context compared to other measurements. And then theoretically, another reason to pay attention to it would be like with COVID, unexpected growth, the capital ratio, going back to what you said at the beginning, part of the reason to have capital restrictions is to prevent excessive growth. Well, over the last couple of years, a lot of credit unions experienced excessive growth that they really could do nothing about. Rates were zero and it was just funneling in because of the world that we lived in. And that could drop you down below the 9% net worth ratio. And then all of a sudden, six months ago, you weren't being measured on it, but now you are, which is a reason to continue to watch it. Yeah, that's a very good point. The other one coming into that is, if credit unions have had a lot of this share growth that's come in on our, on our risk-based yep. capital basis, where are they putting those assets? And predominantly, if you're unable to put it in loans, you're probably putting it into lower risk-weighted assets. So you might find that that risk-based capital ratio isn't fluctuating as much because the risk-weighted assets aren't changing as rapidly because they're being put into lower risk assets. That makes sense. And the other thing I like about the risk-based capital is that the numerator is really purely gap. And it has the deductions that work on these items inside the balance sheet are not going to be available to cover losses. So it's a more precise measure of what is available to cover losses in the event of failure. And so an example of what's excluded in the numerator would that be the merger and acquisition category or what well, other? It, it's, it's not in there because if you do a combination or merger and you have a gain on that transaction in which you are not having to record additional goodwill, that goes directly into equity. So we don't have okay. that kind of non-GAAP item that just kind of sits there and could become problems it's at some point in time, but so far so good on that. It hasn't raised a lot of problems, but it, the calculations takes into account goodwill and tangibles. And it also takes into account the NSUSF deposit and that we do reduce it from the numerator and denominator. So then that measure is more comparable against the other banking agencies, which is the risk-based capital threshold for well-capitalized of 10%. You and I talked about management of capital. You want to speak to what management of capital does and is? Yeah, because there's the regulatory requirement for capital that sets the minimum. 
Now, institutions, large and small, need to be able to discuss with their examiner what their capital goal is and why it's where it is. So in order to get there, you'd have to have probably some measurement beyond regulatory capital approaches. There are many ways to do it out there. The economic capital is one measure of doing it, and that is the calculation I did for doing the CLF. And I looked at all of our assets and you figure, what's the probability of default? And with the investments, the CLF could be very, very low. And then that loss given default, and then the amount of the exposure you have, it, it's not a real complicated transaction, but it is another way of looking at your balance sheet and then identifying those risk items that are in there. What you can always look at for a tool is those credit unions over 10 billion in assets, they have another regulatory requirement to basically to do this. They have the requirement for stress testing and they have the requirement for a capital plan. And if you look at the elements of those, not all of them would be something that you'd have to use for the credit union that you're particularly in because you don't have the complexity of the larger ones, but that does provide some reference as to what items of that appear to be appropriate for your credit union and that you could use. I think the hard thing is, is like I say, when I always go to a credit union and they go, well, our board set a net worth ratio of 9%. And my answer is like, why? It's well, what was the peer average for credit unions in our state of our size? It's like very good, but your assets are exactly the same as theirs. The environment you're operating in, is that the same? I look at it like I like to do the SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I think that that is always another way of like, okay, this is why we would believe that we are safe holding closer to the regulatory minimum amount of capital versus that it's okay for a credit to be aggressive and to be out there and do risks because it might be what their membership needs. But you can do that, but you just need to be able to hold appropriate capital for what you're doing and use of these tools like economic capital and stress testing and capital sensitivity testing, reverse stress testing, all provide value. But you need to be able to have those and be able to understand what it is that you are getting because you can't just assign it off to a third party and say, well, you know, that's all great and good, but just tell us what that means. You need to have at least some people on staff that are very comfortable with that discussion to the examiner that says, near the regulatory minimum is good for us where we decide that we need to bump it up X percentage point because right now we're taking on these risks. And the other thing you need to look at the future because uh, merger and acquisition opportunities are generally going to result in a, at least a short-term decrease in your regulatory capital measures, as you can see them. So if that's in your future, you need to take that into account. So there's lots of items that take place in there. What we've looked for is that credit unions have done analysis and the additional work. So they're really comfortable for why that capital goal is their capital goal. This is a great topic. And it, as you're talking, I'm getting a lot of things that run through my head. Steve, if you think back on the consulting work you and I have done for some of my clients over the last year, this topic has been there more than others. The fact that, okay, NCOA is questioning their capital regime, if you will, and wanting them to better explain why, if they're just overwell capitalized, why that makes sense, how that relates to where they've been. 
And some of the tools you've mentioned here are things that we've suggested to some of the clients we've had. But if you find yourself having capital type questions, reach out to me and I'll explain how to reach out to me later. But this is something that Steve and I would love to try and assist a credit union with to walk through some of this. And then two other things that you said that I want to touch on. As you said, look to what credit unions over 10 billion are asked to do. And I can imagine credit unions out there hearing that have a heavy sigh, you know, like I'm 400 million, I'm not 10 billion. I can't afford to do that. I'm a billion, I'm 25 million. Of course, somebody who's at 9 billion certainly has to be getting ready to transfer over from regional control to the Office of National Exam and Supervision. And so there's this, you know, NCUA comes out with something and one of the things that can happen is it's expected at a higher level and then it can start to bleed into lower levels. And you're not saying to let it bleed. You're just saying, look to it, understand it, take from it what might make sense. And as you read through what larger institutions are asked to do, you might have an aha moment that says, okay, that makes sense for me as it relates to the part of the country I'm in and the risks that I could have while I do that SWOT analysis. And you can raise the bar of what you're doing capital-wise without really having to comply with the rule. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, that, that's a really good point to make. And we don't want to make credit unions go too far. But as you do additional calculations of how much capital you think you should have, it's all related to your risk tolerance. So if you're a you know, low risk tolerance credit union operating fairly well below the $10 billion requirement, we shouldn't be asking for a lot and you don't need a lot. But if you're have a fairly healthy risk appetite, you're in the market for some merger and acquisition activity, certainly you want to be moving your process and sophistication up. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then you talked about one other thing you mentioned under this last discussion was having assistance from a third party. And so there's a lot of good third parties out there that can assist in a lot of different things from ALM, NEV, capital planning and everything. But the point I want to reiterate that you were making is NCUA wants to make sure that while you have that third party, that you own it, that whatever suggestions they might have, maybe they come back and they say, we suggest these 10 things. And you evaluate it internally, say, well, seven of these make sense for us. And the words I think you said were somebody within the walls of the credit union that understands that and then can speak to NCUA with that language so that NCUA understands that the credit union didn't just farm it out, they actually get it. Exactly, exactly. You brought up the stuff about the corporate resolution. Yes, the accounting for our reserve on that was extremely complicated, and we did use third parties. These third parties had a lot of initials after their names, and I did have to spend a great deal of time sitting down with them and saying, okay, this is how you say we should explain it to me again so that I could make sure that I could explain it, and number one, that I understood it and agreed with it, but then I could yeah, you were, you were, that's a great comparison. You were that guy at NCUA who understood that and then could explain it to the board, explain it to Marianne Woodson, the chief financial officer and the CPAs who had to buy into the concept of, yeah, of yeah, how we, we had our, we had our own, uh, you know, yeah. people doing our audit, like the NCUA audit. And I had to be in the room with them and be able to confidently explain to them how that calculation worked and why we were comfortable with the results. Very good. One last thing on this topic. I know, Steve, you and I had helped a couple credit unions with net worth restoration plans. That's something you're fantastic at with that I've got some experience with as well. 
and we were able to, to help those credit unions achieve success. Maybe at some juncture, that's kind of not a lot of credit unions have to do it when they do have to do it. It can be a heavy lift to get approval. And that's something we'll talk about down the road. I know you and I have some other topics we're going to be talking about in future episodes. So this was great. I want to thank you for being my guest here today on the podcast. And in closing, I want to mention that I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I enjoy podcasts myself and a lot of different topics. And one of my favorite podcasts at the end of episodes, they will tack on questions that came up from previous podcasts. So no doubt there might've been something that Steve said here or that I said that triggered a follow-up question that you might have. And if you do have such questions about what we talked about today, I'd like you to reach out and let me know so that we can address those questions and maybe provide some clarification or a follow-up podcast on this topic. And then lastly, if you'd like to talk to me about how Steve and I can assist you and your credit union, you can reach out to me at my email, which is cuexamsolutions. So the letters cuexamsolutions at marktrichel.com or via my website, which is www.marktrichel.com. All right, everybody, that's it for today. I'm Mark Trichel, and I hope you will join me again next time for With Flying Colors.